Hey, people, how's it going? I'm excited. Why are you excited? Because we have uh, one of my favorite people in the world on the podcast today. Seattle and Nutrier's own bassoon king, the great Rain Wilson, here doing uh, Doppelganger at Steppenwolf, which we've been talking about for the past two weeks on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Fitzpatrick's. <laughs> yeah. Rain, you went to Nutrier? I did my last two years of high school at Nutrier High School, yes. Okay, wow. Yeah. We've had a lot of guests that went to Nutrier. There's something going on. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's all the, it's the rich kids, except for me. I was not rich at all. But uh, but he played a mean bassoon. I had to look up what a bassoon actually was when his book came out. It's, um, it's like a giant clarinet. From what I can kind of yeah, but you yeah, but you there's a mouthpiece and you got to sit on a strap and it's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and it goes up in, above your head. I was in band. I played trombone, so I I was okay, you know. I uh-huh. but eh, you know, I wasn't. you were not the trombone king. I was not the trombone king. You were no, more like the, my, no, the skin. My flute dad, king. my went, dad won yeah. an accordion in, in a poker game once, and I had to learn how to play that. And I'm yeah. going to tell you something, you know. Uh, two guys in a band that there's an accordion and a bassoon, they're not going to get the girls. I went to Tennessee to (laughs) tour with my band in high school, and everyone was like, hey, tromboner, (laughs) tromboner, get it? And I was just like, oh, man. That's humiliating. They're so right, though. What attracted you to the bassoon? You know, I got I got uh, bamboozled into playing the bassoon. I was I started doing music. You know, I, I played a lot of music. I did piano lessons and whatnot, and then I was clarinet, and... Um, I just was tired of clarinet and wanted to move on, but I wanted to play saxophone because I had a couple friends playing the sax. And, and so my, uh, my band teacher at the time, his name was John Law. Not kidding. John, Johnny Law was his actual name. And he, bam- he bamboozled me. He was like, um, well, we've got so many saxophone players already. I wanted to play the sax because they were the cool guys in yeah, the tenor sax. Yeah. And they would you sometimes... wear shades and you play the sax. Exactly. And you become president. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you put on the sunglasses. Exactly. You wear boxers. And uh, Steely Dan sings about you. Learn to work the saxophone. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and he's like, oh, we got so many saxophone, but you know what would be so cool? It's the coolest instrument. I was like, what? He goes, oh, man, you should play the bassoon. That's just, (laughs) it's outrageous. It's so cool. You'll get all the girls. I mean, he didn't say that, but that was kind of implicit. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I got suckered into playing the bassoon, which is, it's a really ridiculous, it's a ridiculous instrument because it's so huge. It takes a while to assemble. You have to... You have to buy these pre-made reeds or you make your own reeds. They're very, it's very complicated. Wow. And it's this giant thing and it towers above your head. And then you play it and it sounds like this. It sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> you, you want it to have some heft and it sounds like. Sounds a, like my Uncle Tommy after, you know, corned beef and cabbage. Exactly. You know? <laughs> when, yeah. When you'd, you'd lean over and do the old one-cheek sneak, and, you know. And it does. And there's so much saliva builds in there. It probably smells like you're. Uncle Tommy. Oh too. yeah, 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 yeah. I, I remember you'd have to empty the spit valve to the trombone, which I got tricked into too. I wanted to play drums, and they were like, "Well, we we need a trombone guy," and I was like, "Okay, it's gonna be me." So yeah. I I just remember like you do like lift this little latch, blow as hard as you can, and all this spit just flies out, and you just have to do it on the floor, and it was just like a normal thing. It was so oh man, that's like chewing dude. tobacco or yeah, something. Yeah, it was know? it was. It was like a nerdy chewing tobacco of some sort. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but band. Was, was there like a competition between the uh, brass about <laughs> how much spit you'd have on the floor at the end of a concert or something? I, like I'm that? sure. I'm sure that would that would be a thing. But honestly, I was so I when I just remember being in those band sessions and just being miserable because I got into my high school very late and the band class was the only class I could take. It was either that or drafting i was like i want to take art and they were like oh are all the art classes are booked we have band or drafting i was like i don't know if i can just draw sit and draw lines i was like i'll play drums i'll get good at drums i'll get in a band and that was the plan i was like i'll do that but well, you well, got drafting they and, give you rulers and shit i mean you yeah can, you, you know, got suckered and, and bamboozled yourself yes yeah. i did i did so when you were telling that story i was like do you play drums now at all you know, no. I, I am the worst guy who's ever picked up any instrument. I'm a better listener than a performer when it comes to music. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, everything I picked up, guitar, drums, violin, trombone, I'm sure there's something else. I just, 
I don't know. Not Didn't guitar. I don't have the focus. Gu- guitar for a while. Yeah, guitar. Yeah. I think that was probably the longest I stuck with. You yeah. know, it's just you, you have your father's musical talent, which is to say none. <laughs> yeah, none. <laughs> no, it's like. We're good at listening to music. Maybe people would debate that. You know, that, well, this is but... a good sign. I mean, uh, he's an actor now. He just did yeah. Chicago PD and a, and, a, and a web series called Velvet. And he's yeah. excellent. <laughs> I mean, he's got comic timing I would kill for. Oh, know? that's great. Um, Thank you. <laughs> but uh, that's a good sign. Okay, maybe not musical. Maybe No, maybe... no, no. You, you know when you're kind of good at something and yeah. you know when you're mediocre at something and you know when you're just like you should stay away from exactly. something and instruments are kind of that for you me. You know, I it, lots of people subscribe to that rocky thing of don't quit, don't ever quit. No, unless you suck, you know, if you suck, <laughs> quit quit yesterday. Yeah, you you know? have to have the w- the wisdom and the self-knowledge to know where your skill set lies. It, yeah, it, precisely. And uh and how you can use the god-given gifts that you were bestowed to to both you know, uh, inspire yourself and inspire others. And you have to go, you have to find that path. But some people, I know like actors in LA and they've been at it for like 15 years. And the biggest part they've had is like three lines on like a CSI. Yeah. So you've seen the Tony career for the first 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, honestly, God, until Patriot, uh, besides theater, I, you know, a thug one, thug two, come in, deliver a couple lines, beat the shit out of somebody. Yeah, and but I, you do it. You did it as a hobby on the side of your of your profession. And yeah. And then at a certain point, I got serious, you know, like theater does that to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, wow, you know, I really like this. Was it uh, race that the, the play you did race? Was that kind of the thing that yeah. was the turning point where yeah. you're saying I can be a better than just a a, a side well, guy or that seven hundred lines and a yeah. huge part of the play and yeah that's when I, I I was genuinely surprised that it went as well as it did and yeah uh, and then I wrote my own shows and did them at Steppenwolf and. Uh, yeah, yeah. Once, once you get, you know, we, we don't do it for the money. We don't do it for hmm. do it for <laughs> applause. Right, know? right, I mean, right. That's a, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, I I love theater because the minute you walk out, they're there. You're there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't have to tell you. I mean, you're walking out every night in doppelganger to full houses, and you have to play two different roles. Mm-hmm. And it's farce, which is the most difficult thing in the world to do, it, because comedy is the most difficult thing in the world to do. I mean, it's the timing that you know, and it, it, and this is a long show. It's it's a good two hours and fifteen minutes, like yeah, that, something definitely. like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, man, I don't know how you do it, especially on the days when you have to do two shows. Take us through that a little bit. Yeah, this is the hardest work I've ever done in my life. So I've been acting professionally for almost thirty years. And um, this this is it. This is yeah. it. Um, over two hours, I'm on stage the whole time. Um, it's nonstop pratfalls, sword fights. Quick changes. Quick changes, yeah. uh, massive amounts of lines. And like you said, the, the specificity of the comic timing. I mean, comedy is hard and farce is like triple hard. because yeah, it's a calculus of comedy. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like a Swiss watch. You know, it's yeah. all got to be calibrated and one little thing goes off or one little focus goes off and you lose a laugh and you lose a beat and the, and the momentum shifts and the audience you know, gets behind and it's, it's, it requires total focus. There's no kind of like, I'm just going to feel my way through this play tonight. You've got to just, and you come, it comes out and it's like, I say, it's like being shot out of a cannon into a roller coaster. Yeah. Cause. Absolutely. uh, And, 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 and the cast around you, which is so magnificent as well. Yeah. Um, Everybody's timing was just. Yeah, I I was just in awe. Um, I'm I'm going to come back and see it again. Oh, great! Yeah, because it's it's just uh, honestly. First of all, one of the best experiences I've ever had watching a show. Oh, that's, um, that's great! I didn't even yeah. notice that that it was that it had gone as long as it did. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, "Well, let's let's go get something to eat." And my wife said, "Well, it's a little late to be eating." You know, I, and I said, what time is it? And it's like. Well, it's almost it's almost ten, you know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And we we saw a show that started at seven, 
Um, yeah. Well, the show is such a ride, man. Oh I yeah. Mean, when I, mean, when I define just... shows as a ride, that is what you. That's what you say. It's you know, it, it might be a three hour show. Yeah. But you, it feels like an hour because of how much it blew by. Because you're having so much fun and. Rain, what gravitated you toward this challenge of of playing two characters, and and did you know it was going to be this challenging at first, or did you look at this project and say, "Whoa, uh, this is going to be hard, but I want to do it"? No, I was in uh, a lot of denial about this. I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't really realize it until we were in the room and we did a couple read throughs, and then I was my jaw dropped, like internally yeah, yeah. my jaw dropped, and I was like, "Oh my fucking god, <laughs> I am so fucked." What have I gotten myself into? This is going to be so hard. Not to mention memorizing all those yeah. lines, oh, yeah, which yeah. gets Jesus. a little bit harder to do when you're 52 years yeah, old. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, and, uh, I worked my ass off on this thing. So, but I was, you know, I, I read the script and I was really drawn to the idea that this guy, I said, it's a combination of like noises off and Bertrand Brecht. Yeah. Like it's, it's a farce. A little bit. Yeah. No, it does have accidental death of an anarchist uh, in it a little Mm -hmm. bit. Rhinoceros by Ionesco. Those great farces that deal with political themes. Exactly. And you know, the, the great thing about Doppelganger is that the politics of it absolutely land. Mm-hmm. And it's totally. very hard to do with something as broad, as kinetic, and as physical as what you guys do in Doppelganger. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, you know, the, the, the idea that um, conspicuous capitalism enslaves people economically around the world. I mean, that does land. Yeah. And the laughs you laugh are very bitter laughs. You yeah. Know? It's like, yeah. And it's interesting. There was someone who came to the show because the the conceit is that it's set in the Central African Republic, and it's a bunch of in, wealthy industrialists and politician types, mm-hmm. all kind of figuring out how to divvy up the resources of this country, yeah. and making people tenants in their own country. Exactly. Yeah. And the uh, there's an outrageous character played by Audrey Francis, who's this. Uh, uh, she's the best. Yeah, she's so funny. We and love her. She's. Um, She's uh, uh, plays that British diplomat in the show, and there was someone who was actually like a, a British diplomat who worked with British diplomats ar- around the world, <laughs> and they said, and they said that's not an exaggeration. Like who she is in the play, how outrageous she is, and the the things she says about like the sun will continue to rise in the British Empire, and um, the the way that the deal making works, the backroom deals. Um, is is not that outrageous? It might seem silly or in, or caricatured in the buddy. Play. We live in Chicago. We in backroom deals. It's like that's that's front yeah. room politics. That's yeah, how, that's <laughs> how know? it gets done. So uh, it's a lot more realistic than you think because this happens. You know, yeah. generals and diplomats and industrialists and 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 miners and hey, yeah. bl- blood diamonds, uh, mm-hmm. copper, electrical power, in, in the politics of lithium, uh, batteries, Africa. cobalt, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And these they make they get together in rooms and they go like, okay, how can yeah. we get this out of the ground as cheaply as possible and make as much money for ourselves as humanly possible without paying yeah. the people who live there anything? Yeah, yeah, it's I, very I, scary. As funny as those scenes are in the play, I mean, I, I when I was laughing during one of the, uh, I mean. It's the last. It's pretty much the last scene when they're negotiating, talking about stuff. Uh, I don't know if I can spoil anything. I don't. Know, but it's basically when he's like, "Kill them all, kill them," all. and then they're all like, "Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that." And it, <laughs> yeah. But it, it it had this. You know, I, I found myself laughing because it's, it's hilarious. But at, I did stop and I go, "Whoa!" I go. Yeah. People really think like this. This it, is not it, like an exaggeration. And you know what? This is a play completely. that follows you home, and it makes you think. It about, does you know? We carry around iPhones in our pockets, and yeah. I do have some discomfort at the thought that a great many people uh, live in economic bondage because I have to buy one of these things all the time. And, True, and it's it does make you think about you know who you are in the world and. Uh, you know, the best art does that. And, you know, Billy Wilder once said, if you're going to teach people anything, you better make them laugh or they'll kill you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> That's a great quote. But, yeah, we were, we were just astonished but just by how resonant this play well, I was. Think the, yeah. I think the only answer, Tony, to, to that is, you know, to um, commit oneself to the betterment of humanity, especially through education. 
And that's my, why my wife and I started um, and work on this educational initiative in Haiti, mm-hmm. although they're not mining cobalt and lithium in Haiti, but um, to do whatever we can to, to give back um, through, you know, you want real economic empowerment, it's going to come through education and yeah. uh, uh, uplifting people so that they, they it's not handouts, it's give them the best possible education so they can transform their own communities the Precisely. way they need to be transformed. Definitely. Educated people have choices. Yeah. You know, we, we have 700 people a year in Chicago die of gunfire. And the first thing Emmanuel did when he took office was close 50 in Chicago public schools and fire 500 educators and administrators. I don't ever understand why people can't see the causal connection between violence grinding poverty, and lack of educational opportunity. So tell us more about La Lide. Yeah, so uh, Lide, um, so I would say anyone who buys an iPhone, okay, you're going to spend $800 on an iPhone, sure. give $800 to uh, international education somewhere. How's that? Okay, good idea. Pretty fair trade can we, sure. can we get the links and stuff so that our, our massive audience of, like, uh, Chris's mother and my nephew, Kenny, <laughs> can, can donate uh, to Lide? Sure, absolutely. So, Thank yeah, you. it's Lide.org or LideHaiti.org, I think. I'll, I'll send you the link. We'll post it with the podcast. All right, awesome. Yeah, so my wife and I went down there before. You you spent some time in Haiti. I spent I wanna, uh, some I time in the mid-'80s, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a long time ago. We were there uh, before the earthquake and visited some schools that we were helping raise some money for. And um, two months later, the earthquake came, uh, killed a couple hundred thousand people in uh, just a handful of minutes. Yeah. Um, and uh, the hotel that we were staying at was completely destroyed. Everyone inside of it was killed. Were and you in Patienville or Port-au-Prince? We were kind of between Port-au-Prince and Patienville. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Hotel Montana. All right. Rings I know it. Yeah. I remember a, it. It's a pretty well-known. Yeah place and uh so we were like we got to do something so we went down sean penn started his whole uh thing down there jphro which is a great uh nonprofit, and we went and volunteered doing this arts workshop for teenage girls and we it was a really powerful experience we saw how much effect um arts had to build community and bring people together and to empower these girls help give them voices to make change in their community because change because the the thing is about people talk about education and um, you know academics are are super important but if you're just teaching academics and you're not teaching um, and and if the people learning the academics don't have any uh, empowerment in in terms of themselves in terms of finding their voice and their place in the world it won't do any good you know you can teach yeah. a teenage girl algebra but if she doesn't understand that that her education can help be, she can be a change agent in her community and that she has power and that um, she has, um, you know, volition. That An it, agency. It, yes. Agency. Yeah, then yeah. It, then, it, then it, won't, it won't do any good. So the arts is – that's how we started and um, we've been going for about four or five years now. We're in northern Haiti, very remote areas, very, very r- rural mm-hmm. ha- parts of Haiti that most Haitians don't even know exist. You know, we have a couple of art galleries. If you ever want to put a show together of that work to create some income. Oh, great. Please, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Say the word. We'd love to do it. Oh, that. that's great. Yeah. We, we talk about doing that. It's It gets a little tricky um, with, you know, how funds are used and, and, and dispersed and with the artists. But anyways. We don't take a percentage. Oh, there you go. So, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, with the girls making the art and stuff like that. So, yeah. But we're in uh, 13 different locations in Haiti working with almost 500 girls, and we have branched out from just doing arts to uh, the first thing that when we got out in the communities, they asked us to focus on literacy because about 50% of the girls that we were working with couldn't read. Yeah. So we added literacy and um, have taught hundreds of girls to read. And now we have a mobile computer lab, so basic computer literacy, and we do scholarships, um, and we do kind of after-school tutorials because that's one of the big things is these girls, they get left behind very easily. They have to work the fields. So they're going to school part-time, and they're they're getting up at 5 a.m. to cook their family breakfast and go work the fields in the mornings before afternoon school. Were they sugar cane and and rice and... Yeah. Because um, right next door is Santa Domingo, and I know for the longest time, 
Santo Domingo could sell their crops much cheaper Mm -hmm. than Haiti. And there was this kind of economic border war. Well, yeah, it it starts to all get very complicated. Uh, The Dominican Republic, uh, the racism against Haitians in the Dominican Republic is is some of the worst in the world. Um, They... um, they will deport Haitians that have been living there, that their families have been living there for 150 years. Yeah. I mean, I'm not kidding. And no, just I, say, I know this. You, they cross the John Brown Highway, and they're sometimes literally taking their life in their hands. Yeah. I remember taking a tap-tap from Port-au-Prince to Patientville, and I remember, uh, you know, Dominican— uh, I don't know, gendarme, cops, border guys, you know, kind of checking through everybody. And, uh, you know, and they, were, they were on Haitian soil. I mean, it was hmm. – and I asked uh, the guy who took me around line all this. He goes, well, you know, not, not far off of John Brown Highway is the, the border between uh, Haiti and, and San Domingo, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Dominican Republic. And – it was, uh, I mean, it was toxic. I mean, it was uh, like seeing the way sometimes cops treat Im- immigrants here, mm-hmm. and and now more and more. Um, I was there right after Baby Doc got thrown out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went at the urging of Jonathan Demi, and um, who was a huge supporter of Haiti. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was Demi doing over there? He'd he'd. Uh, uh, he fell in love with the country. He was, became a very big collector of Haitian art. Okay, um, and uh, he has one of the largest Haitian art collections in the world. And Haitian art, for those of you who don't know about it, is absolutely astonishingly beautiful changed, and original. Changed it's, the way I made art. Yeah, uh, I spent a lot of time with Andre Pierre uh, mm. when I was there, mm-hmm. who, with the sales of his paintings, built over a hundred cement homes right behind his. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, he was, the guy was a living saint, you know, just one of the... Uh, wow, so he would yeah. sell his paintings and just build houses for yeah. family members yeah. and, and friends and, he and lived, local community. And he lived in the exact same kind of house. There's no, you know... Right. He goes, uh, as long as I have enough for paint and a glass of rum, and he was a a Vodun, uh, you know, a, a Vodun priest. Mm-hmm. And um, he said to me, he goes, you know, everyone who practices Vodun here is also Catholic, you know, you go to the Vodun Temple a couple of nights a week and Mass on Sunday. <laughs> and there was this there was this awful book that came out uh, right about that same time called The Serpent and the Rainbow that just demonized Haiti. Um, between that and the idea that AIDS had somehow started there, uh-huh. uh, uh, Haiti was kept in this uh, social and economic uh, imprisonment. Hmm. Um, that I, I think pretty much still lasts. But the yeah, Serpent and the Rainbow did no favors for the no, country it just, of Haiti. It, it demonizes, right? And they made that really cheesy movie out of it, too. So it's all yeah, like I, voodoo I priests and, and yeah. human sacrifice and zombies and yeah, stuff yeah, like that. And what movie is this? It's called The Serpent and the Rainbow. Okay, you know? I, I've yeah. never, never yeah, heard it. It's from the 80s. No Pullman oh, okay. was in it. And like, to this day, I can't stand that guy just because of uh, that movie. I mean, I shouldn't hold it against an actor, but... Uh, yeah, but the the history of Haiti is fascinating in the uh, because it was the second uh, independent uh, uh, republic in the Western Hemisphere after the it United States. It was the States. first. It was the only is eighteen uh, African yeah, uh, and it population. was from a slave from a slave rebellion from a slave yep. revolt, and that was a big threat to the Don't United States. Don't see many Huguenots around anymore down there, do you? <laughs> you know, and to the French and to the English, so they were uh, cut off um, and. Um, um, Embargoed and uh, and then we propped up a couple of dictators named Papa Doc Duvalier and his son Baby Doc. Um, It's a it's a fascinating history about um, kind of the perils and evils of capitalism. Paul Farmer, who does a lot of work down there, uh, he wrote an amazing book uh, called "The Uses of Haiti." That's a that's a great read if people want to dig in more. And if you're a major league baseball fan, all of your baseballs are made in Haiti. The baseballs are made there? Yeah. And all the players come from the Dominican Republic. Yeah, and uh, a few, the the first uh, uh, man of color to ever play for the Boston Red Sox was Haitian, Pumsey Green. Oh, wow. Yeah. How about that? When um, was that? 
That was in 1958 or 59. Okay. So what right Can you imagine you were, like, being born? the first black guy in the Boston Red Sox? No, I I would never yeah. want to yeah. never want to do that. The first black NHL player uh also played for Boston, Willie O'Ree. Oh, okay. Um so my uh, what what I noticed about Haiti was um, these direct kind of contradictions. The most one of the most physically beautiful places I have ever seen in my life, and mm-hmm. I and I spent a lot of time there. I went to Jacques Mel, I went to uh, Patientville. I stayed at the Kenam where Graham Greene wrote the comedians. Um, I've stayed at the Kenam. That's yeah, great. yeah. I, I I love that place. I love that town. Uh, and when you go up, it, it's like somebody crumpled up a piece of paper and threw it on, on the ocean. You know, it's very hilly and mountainous. And um, uh, people very often are, are add beauty to their own lives mm-hmm. rather than, you know, for the chicken uh, place you buy chickens, there will be a small red house with white chickens painted all mm-hmm. over its silhouettes. And it was gorgeous. And... Haitians are not afraid of colors or patterns or um, and incredibly self-reliant people. I mean, the, one of the biggest problems is the lack of fresh water yeah, and, and wells. Um, mm. So when a Haitian needs fresh water, he goes and walks to the stream and, and gets it. You know, when he needs a chair, he builds a chair. I mean, um, it, it taught me uh, something about being uh, resilient. And um, uh, one of the big sayings after they threw Baby Doc out, and there was this optimism for a while, Mm -hmm. um, was, uh, I'm not poor, I'm alive. uh, Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great and very true. But uh, we will post all the information about Lee Day. Yeah. uh, Yeah, I mean, I I just uh, have uh, an immense amount of admiration uh, for your mission, um, you and your wife. Yeah. Uh, your wife, of course, is the writer Holiday Reinhorn. Yes. Yes, and, indeed. Uh, She's pretty awesome. Yeah. She wrote a collection of short stories called Big Cat, which is wonderful. Right on. Yeah. Right on. And at the same time, my studio used to be called Big Cat. So Big Cat you know, Press. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I miss that. Do we still have that poster? There was this, like, Big Cat, obviously, because it's Big Cat Yeah, Press. I got and it somewhere. this little guy. That was you. That you would say, yeah, that's you, yeah, and his yeah. little boxer on top of his head. Um, I got it somewhere. I, miss that, I, don't, man. I don't know where the hell it is. Yeah. But, um, Maybe Stan has it. Uh, <laughs> we'll go get him. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, man, yeah, that was that was a that was a cool time back in that day, Big Cat. And that's I, I still had Big Cat when I first met Rain. That's uh, right, yeah. Uh, I remember, you know, I remember when you guys met. It was around, like, 2007, 2008. 2008 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, we were, I mean, he our came, whole family. He came to my show at the yeah. cultural center. But we, I was, right. I was as like, a, shocked. Yeah, as know? a family, we were all, like, tuned in every Thursday to the, to, to oh, the yeah. office, obviously. Absolutely. It, but, I mean, when we heard, it was like, you go, Max, Rain Wilson uh, is, is probably going to, you know, he's thinking about one of my pieces, man. Like, like this would be awesome. I go, yeah. Rain who? And you go, you go uh, the, Dwight True. Dwight. <laughs> and I go, oh. <laughs> and it was just like, it was one of those awesome moments. But yeah, man, we, uh, I, we, I don't know. I was, I was subscribing to the New York Times, and uh, I guess you were having a show in Williams, Williamsburg at the time. Yeah. And they had, a, they had a color photo of one of your pieces. And it just like... It's just how I, I was just like, what the hell is that? That is so beautiful and complex and mysterious and moving. And whatever that is, I, I want that thing, <laughs> whatever that is. So I did a deep dive on the Internet and was looking at your stuff. And I was just like, then I found the phone number to your yeah. T where you were working called. I think you answered the phone. You're like, yeah, this is Tony. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I was like, can I buy a painting? You're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's going to cost you a pretty penny, but. Uh... Yeah, well, sometimes people, they they don't realize that it was, you know, at a certain point, it's what you get, you know. Um, and. Uh, you know, once you're in the art world, I mean, you don't have a whole lot of control over your prices. I mean, now yeah. I do more because I no longer have dealers. I just, you know, except for one great one in Seattle, which we'll get to. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, 
yeah, I mean, pretty soon all the people that I made art for and about could no longer afford it. I mean, that's one of the reasons I worked so hard uh, and concentrated so much on making etchings yeah. because mm-hmm. they were a lot more approachable and, you well, know. The, even on a smaller scale, that's, posters, what, that's yeah. why I was like, we should make posters, man. There's yeah. so many of my friends who will call me and be like, hey, so how much is your, is your dad's work? <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. And yeah. I, and I like, yeah. I'm like, ah, it's not going to happen. I don't even, I don't even tell them what, what it, what it Yeah, but it's you just... know, we've, we've found a way to democratize. Yeah. We can make some posters sure. and stuff like yeah. that. But... And we want to make sure it's, I mean, I, I, I'd like to make Tony Fitzpatrick accessible to everybody, you know, that'd be, that'd be awesome. Well, that's one of the things I loved about Keith Herring, who was one of the first guys who ever bought one of my drawings. Yeah. Mm. Is he had the pop shop because he wanted everybody to be able to hand one, have one, and I, I kind of understand that, mm, you mm. know. But um, we can't yeah, we can't not talk about the office. I mean, this is uh, <laughs> okay. I'm 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 a fan. I was a fan from six feet under on. It's like I don't know who that guy is, but that's a great actor, and everything he does is interesting. And I I can't put my finger on it. You were only like yourself. Yeah, and what makes it such a special show is, you know, that cast. I mean, I think oh boy, just yeah. about everyone, they're all good. Got something yeah. great out of it. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, Jesus, it's. I'm just thinking of everyone. Just yeah. like you know, obviously Steve Carell, obviously. I'm Jim a huge Mindy Colling fan, who I know you have a yeah. feud with. <laughs> no, it's a it's a completely manufactured feud. I love Mindy. I, I I adore her. I just yeah. think she's great. Um, well, it all goes down to the uh, the creator of the American show, Greg Daniels, who has just mm-hmm. a great eye for talent and is a great leader and uh, a really kind human being, very un-Hollywood in every yeah. way. Mm-hmm. And uh, he knew how to build this little mini empire of the office, incredible the family, writing, yeah. writing talent and... Uh, yeah. And acting talent, and uh, it was a it was a very loving, collaborative set. Uh, it was a lot of fun to work on yeah. uh, almost all the time. Sometimes it could get a little bit, you know, stren- strenuous, but it was it was a great place to work, and people were, were really cool. And I think that that showed in the work. What was great about it is that uh, it looked like a bunch of people who worked in an office. It wasn't a bunch of like models pretending they worked in an office. It was like. People who look like working Americans look. I yeah. mean, I, I thought that yeah. was incredibly refreshing, and um, and I loved Carell. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he's just uh, oh sure. He seems like yeah. he also seems like a very good dude. Yeah, very nice guy and Chicago guy, Second City yeah, guy. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, incredible improviser. Um, uh, I would always just throw stuff at Steve, uh, and. Just for the hell of it, just to see what yeah. he would do, just like out of nowhere, and he, I could never throw him. You could never. He would never kind of stop he and rattle. look. It, he would never. You could yes. never rattle his yeah. cage. You could just all of a sudden start talking about like three-legged zebras, and yeah. he would be right there with you, completely in character, yeah. uh, talking about it. The uh, stapler and the Jello is just one of the funniest goddamn things I've well, ever that, seen in my that's, life. That's 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 something they did in in the American and and the British the British version. When when you're doing that show in the beginning, are you nervous that it's it's going to be you know perceived as oh this is just a rip off or it's not going to be as good or is it just let's just do it and see how we feel? We're having fun anyway. It's because it seems like you guys are having a lot of fun when you do it. But in the beginning, was there, you know, was there this nervous doubt or like this uh, trepidation yeah. at all? No, there, there, there really wasn't. There was none. I mean, okay. we thought the British show was great, but you know, the British show was not appropriate for American television. Yeah. They did a total of they did a grand total of thirteen episodes, right? right. Over yeah. three years. And <laughs> so you guys, you guys did. Ac- Eight seasons, right? That economic model just doesn't hold up. No, you know, no. like we did two hundred episodes over nine seasons. Oh yeah. my goodness! And what was it like twenty four se- uh, twenty four episodes a season? Pretty much. Okay. And uh, so w- we were like, and also their episodes are twenty nine minutes long. American yeah. television is twenty one minutes and thirty seconds long for a half hour wow. episode. So. Uh, we had to lose some of the awkward pauses. We didn't have all that extra, you know, then yeah. then extra 25% 
per episode, mm-hmm. you know. But so we thought, well, there's a there's a great American version of this. Greg Daniels is a is a great leader, and mm-hmm. let's have at it. And um, so we didn't have any of that kind of doubt or fear about it. We we knew we could make something really special and cool, cool and that bowed you know deferentially to the British office, but was also its own animal. And uh, you know, uh, and 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 it worked out great. I mean, we almost got canceled a whole bunch of different times. Uh, really? What? Oh, oh my God! You really? guys you need to do your history. No, yeah, I, we were I, I like, we, we got slammed in the reviews. We were just eviscerated. Season one. Jesus, okay. we watched it from the beginning, of and the uh, and the the ratings were very low, and they kind of went down, and everyone slammed us. I'm not as good as the British Office. Not as oh, good. Not as good no. as the British Office. Not as good. And and then Kevin Riley was running NBC at the time, and Jeff Zucker was the big boss, but and he just. He said, "Okay, we'll do six. We got so we did six for our first season. We did a pilot, and then we did five additional episodes. Mm-hmm. Like no one ever does that. Five on a network TV right. show, yeah, right? Yeah. They and do then, at least thirteen. They do half a half a season, at, at yeah. least. Yeah. And then and then the next season, I think we did. We got commissioned for like another five. So we were just kind of like snuck in this back door, and um, and and then." And it, it, we were almost canceled a whole bunch of different times. We were barely hanging on. And we really were saved due to My Name is Earl. My Name is Earl, which no one remembers now. Oh, I, I it, oh, we watched Jason it. Lee. We loved and, it. It, it, was a, uh, it was Ethan a, Suplee. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? It was a big show at the time, and it was getting really strong ratings, and we kind of rode on their coattails. Yeah. We were a good match with them. They were both single camera shows. Yeah. And they really saved our asses. You know the the woman in that show was hysterically funny too. They're a very pretty blonde woman. I don't. Yeah, Jamie uh, Presley. Jamie... Presley. Jamie Presley. Yeah, Jamie Presley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She was really funny yeah. in that show. She yeah. was great. Yeah, I love my name well, is Earl. I, th- I love The Office. Well, I thought The Office really started uh, the American version at least became its own monster, its own um, you know force. Right around that third season when Ed Helms and, uh, yeah. you know, the merging happened, that mm-hmm. was yeah. sort of when it started to take the off. The merger there. at Dunder I, Mifflin. Yeah. yeah. That was amazing. Rashida I, Jones came in. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I adore her and I love uh, Ed Helms and just, you know, his movie Cedar Rapids is one of those underrated gems. Oh, yeah. That's I, a just, I adore yeah. that film. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, last year uh, or the year before last, Showtime had this thing on, and it, it only won a season, and I loved it. And evidently, I'm the only one who did. It was called Roadies, and you had a guest bit in mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And you know, I thought they should have given that show another season, another chance to kind of grow arms and legs. Yeah, that and- was another one. It's it's really interesting. This thing that I'm noticing a lot. In Hollywood, but in also in popular culture, it's like what gets deemed cool and good by both the critics, the paid critics, and the online critics. And Cameron mm-hmm. Crowe created the show Roadies, and um, it's very much like almost as if like a contemporary, almost famous TV show. Kind of, right. yeah. and you know what? They had a big beating heart. It also had the advantage of Carlo Gugino, who's a great actor. You know, and uh, but everyone decided to hate it. I mean, almost before it came out, it's like why do you think that is? I, I, mean, I, I can't. Th- I can't figure it out for the life of me. I mean, yes, he was really big in the '90s, and he's had some misfires at the box office in the last ten years. But I mean, these critics were just like just just tearing it apart because it's it has some sentiment it has a big feeling it's like a family it has warm feelings in it and they just went. After it, I thought the characters were like wonderful. Yeah, you know, I did you know? too. I thought it was really great the way it wove like the music. One, the one was... groupie who keeps sneaking in and um, yeah, and you know having her way with whoever she wants in the band. The uh, yeah, I, I really thought it had a big beating heart, and I thought I wanted to spend more time with those people. And it's a love letter to kind of rock and roll and stuff like that. Absolutely, and, and the guy who was like the fictional uh, stage manager of uh, you know the now half dead Leonard Skinner. Mm-hmm. He 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 was a stand-up guy, and uh, 
Well, what's his name? He's the guy who's on with he he does that redneck comedy thing with uh Jeff Foxworthy and uh, Larry the cable guy? No, not him, the other guy. The oh. guy has always got a glass of scotch in his hand. And he's he's got gray hair, he's Yeah, but I oh, thought man. he was marvelous in it. Yeah, he was great. And, and uh um and I I always think Carla Gugino is great in whatever she does. She had a television series years ago called uh, Karen Sisko hmm. with Robert Forster, and it was it, based on a Elmore Leonard story. Oh, that's story. Right, That show. Oh, and you know what? Yeah. It was way better than it got credit for being. And then mm-hmm. uh, I just, uh, but I thought you were great. I thought the, uh, your your bit of roadies was just. Yeah, thanks. That was. A I lot remember of fun. texting you. I don't. I don't know if you ever got the text, but. Uh, I probably did. I probably just ignored it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like a no, my character was uh, fucking I, fans. I can't even remember the name of him, but he's based on this guy Bob Lefsitz. Do you know that guy? The Lefsitz letter. Yeah, he's, he's a, this critic that sends out daily emails about the music industry. Yeah, he pontificates ad nauseum. Holier than thou. Yeah, yeah. and um, but he's actually a pretty damn good writer, and he's very insightful. And I actually really enjoy subscribing well, to I mean, his newsletter. I mean, that's why people like Lester Bangs. I mean, he was a yeah. wonderful stylist. I, I didn't agree with him with half this shit. Yeah, my friend Lou Reed hated his guts. You mm-hmm. know, but um. I know why people like Lester Bangs. I mean, he, he definitely uh, had a stake in the cultural zeitgeist that, that eventually gave us punk rock. And, and, and if he if he championed a band, he really got behind you it. You bet he did. Yeah. yeah. For years, he was totally loyal. What bands did he champion? Oh, New York Dolls. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, uh, tra- television. Um, okay, yeah. All the really kind of transgressive sounds of the punks. He was, he okay. was in Almost Famous. He's Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman played him. Oh wow! Okay, okay. You know, and the, you were in Almost Famous. That was that was my first movie role. Yeah. Tell us about your audition for Almost Famous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was amazing because my first audition, I was just put on tape and I read a bunch of small characters, and then I months later said, "Oh, you've got a callback with Cameron Crowe." I was like, "Oh my god!" And they're like. If you want to read the script, you have to go into his office and sign in, and you can't have any camera or phone on you, and you can read it, and then you have to sign out, but you can't take the script with you. It was under lock and key. Wow. Mm -hmm. So I read the original draft of Almost Famous that was like 150 pages long. It was the most brilliant thing I've ever read in my life, the best script I've ever read from top to bottom. Of course, he had to cut it way, way down, both to begin shooting and then after once it was shot. Um, It was... Un- unbelievable uh, story. And then I go in to meet Cameron Crowe, and I'm, I'm very nervous. And um, he comes in, and he's barefoot, and he's got a little camcorder, and I'm sitting on a chair, and he comes in and sits on the floor, cross-legged at my feet. He's like, hey, man, I really dug your audition. Your first one, that was great. Let's just let's try it again and just play with it. And then he opened the camcorder, and he starts filming me from the floor. <laughs> And he's like, where are you from, bro? And what's going on? And like totally like. He's a very earnest guy. Yeah, no, and no Hollywood BS at all. No power dynamic status kind of stuff. Just um, uh, really collaborative. And we played with it. And I I had a small role. Um, It was going to be a larger role. and uh, but they but they cut it down of the, the the editor at Rolling Stone magazine. I, ha- I had a, another really great scene that they had to cut out, uh, wow. which is which was too bad. But it was a great first movie to be in. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That same summer I shot I shot Galaxy Quest and Almost Famous in one summer. Wow. Well, the first summer I moved to Los Angeles. I would say that's a pretty good summer. I summer. haven't seen Galaxy Quest since I was. Uh, like a kid, man. But I remember loving that movie. Who did you play? I, I apologize. I was one of the aliens. Okay, Lank, okay. Lank, the I'm one of the Thermians. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's so awesome, man. And now in your book, The Bassoon King, uh, you kind of document your trajectory from childhood. And I've just met your father. I met your dad a week ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, his father is um, the marvelous painter, uh, Robert Wilson. Right. On. From uh, Washington State. Awesome. And his paintings kind of evoke, they don't look like it, but they evoke artists like James Havern, um, Arthur Dove, Milton Avery, all that great kind of abstraction, uh, luminous kind of thing. They're real spiritual, and I really like them. Um, but for, for a time, 
Your mom and dad went to Nicaragua. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you lived there for a while. Yes. Well, my, my mom left me and my dad when I was about two. And my dad was heartbroken. And we were, the family were members of the Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. And so they went down to essentially do what's called pioneering um, it's it's kind of similar to missionary work, but the goal is not like to convert yeah. the natives by the hundreds. It's more to serve the community and work with the Baha'i community mm-hmm. and build the Baha'i community. Um, so uh, we went to coastal Nicaragua, Blue Fields. It's a town on the Caribbean coast, and um, it's uh, it's it's where the Mosquito Coast was. That yeah. remember that movie yeah. with Harrison Ford? Yeah. So yeah. it's that kind of. There's these mosquito Indians who have been living the same way for hundreds of years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and they mixed with runaway slaves. So the yeah. Indians look almost black. Yeah. Um, and, you know, bows and arrows and spear fishing. And, but they also have like outboard motors. And it's, it's kind of crazy out there. You had a pet sloth. I had a pet sloth, yeah. What was yeah. his name? Oh, boy. It's in the book now. I can't remember. Is it Alex? <laughs> it's like, it was something like. Steven, or it was something very normal. I, now I'm blanking on the, on the name. <laughs> the, the, overnight, the, the pet sloth would make a break for it. Decided to escape, get out of his cage because they're very, yeah. very strong. And he, you know, like Superman, he pulls cage bars apart. But they're very slow, so he'd make a break for it at like two in the morning. And about six, he'd gotten like six feet away <laughs> you know every morning we just go in a 20 foot radius and then we'd find the sloth oh exactly under yeah. a bush and we just put them back in the cage and bend the bars back yeah and um that's incredible uh, man. you know i mean sloths are they're like low-hanging fruit for harpy eagles i mean harpy eagles eat them you know oh man but I, i've never met anyone who actually had a sloth I, uh, yeah those harpy know. eagles those are those are I some dastardly creatures they're in south america mostly right like peru mostly ecuador brazil yeah. uh peru nicaragua's yeah. got some again uh because of the clearing of the rainforest we're like every other creature on earth we're kind of losing them yeah but uh they're the biggest eagle in the western hemisphere wow yeah. did you see that eagle fly on that baseball player's <coughs> shoulder and he's just like swatting it away or i don't think he swat i think he like kept calm but i would not Keep calm. I would not it, piss him off. Oh, know? man. He was was it like a this. mascot eagle? Or yeah, like a yeah it was like eagle. a mascot eagle that they brought out. And, uh, you know, it, they they do this all the time in sports where they bring out, like, the Atlanta Hawks will bring out a hawk, and then it'll get loose somehow and start yeah. flying around. Or a bat will the, get the loose. The Seattle Seahawks do that. They have the, the Seahawk come out, but it's oh, very well man. trained. It comes soaring yeah. out well, right over the cameras. Well, they have a falconer handle them. They have somebody yeah. Who's, like, yeah, well, who's got a big, big, you know, piece of food for him to... They don't just it, you know, in you this Atlanta Hawks game. And, yeah. The Falconers like chasing him down, trying to. Like, yeah. It was like on the backboard. It was just like it, it was scary. Like, fuck yeah. you! I'm not coming. Down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it was insane. Um, but spe- but Seahawks, man, w- dude, I can't think of a better Super Bowl than 2000. Was it 14 when the when they won? That was such a sweet. Yeah, I can't remember the there, year. But I think it yeah. Was- Oh my the, God, man! I, I, are you? I was there. Seattle I was there. Sports guy? You were there. And they demolished the Broncos. Yeah. Yes, that was oh, an yeah. amazing. Oh joy! Well, I, I anytime enjoyed the that... Broncos lose, I hated Elway. Yeah, <laughs> I never trust a guy oh. with big teeth like that. You know. What I mean? Well, I, I'm not a big, <laughs> Mr. Fucking. I wasn't a big you Peyton know? Manning guy either, man. I mean, this is, he beat the Bears in the Super Bowl one. You know and what? Then, I I, you know. I, give, I cut Peyton and his brother some slack because when I was in New Orleans and after Katrina, those guys did their level best to give a lot of money to raise oh, a lot of money. I mean, right on. Yeah, no, I don't. Know. I don't like dislike them. I just yeah. have like a sports beef with them. That's really it. But you have um, a lot of sports beef, son. Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, I do. I do. But um, are you are you a well, fig- Fitzpatrick's got a lot of beefs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a yeah, lot of we, beefs with a lot of people. You, you know what Irish yeah. Alzheimer's is, right? What's that? We forget everything but the grudges. <laughs> 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 but you're you're uh, are you a big Seattle sports guy or, or are you just? Oh, like, I'm, uh, I'm a big Seahawks fan. I yeah. have been since I was a kid. But like Mariners, like I, I like the Mariners if they if they if they ever go into yeah. the postseason, I would root for them. Definitely. You know, but do you miss the Sonics? I definitely miss the Sonics. That was yeah. that was a travesty. I don't know what exactly happened there, but yeah. um, well, I'm I'm wearing this shirt, uh, repping this team for you. Hopefully, they'll get their team back, and hopefully, it won't be at the cost of another franchise. They often talk about moving Milwaukee 
to Seattle. Yeah, they talked about for a long time Sacramento moving right, to Seattle right, right. too. But yeah. they've been happen. talking about yeah. that. For I hope 20 that years doesn't now. have to happen. I hope they can just give them. Maybe OKC should just give them back, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll I'd see, love to but, have the the Bucks would be great. The Seattle Bucks. It's got a ring to it, and but the, they've got the Greek freak. You get the Greek guy, yeah, yeah. Yes. I'll tell you what they're crazy for in Seattle now is the uh, uh, the soccer team. Yeah, the Sounders. Just, just right on. They they had this huge parade Saturday through. Pioneer Square of the Sounders fans. Okay, I've seen. I've never seen more uh, bright green and navy blue uh, kilts and hoodies and yeah. and and guys playing drums and yeah, they're soccer crazy up there. We were. I played soccer up there before anyone was playing soccer in the rest of America. <laughs> um, the Northwest was huge soccer. The, place. Huge, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the, and it's from Vancouver, Seattle, Portland. They're, out of their minds. I went to school with this team. girl, Michelle Akers, who was on the U.S. girls' national team that oh, won right our on. gold medals really? and stuff right like on. that. Yeah, That's yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, promise us when you're in town again, you'll come back and keep us informed about Lee Day. Yeah. And, uh, Absolutely. You know, we, would, we would definitely love to have you back, and we are so grateful that you made time for us, man. Hey, thanks yes. for Thank having, you, having me on your show, guys. Of course. Yeah. Of course. All right. Yeah. This is it. Take us out, kid. All right. This is the Max and Tony Show. Uh, see you soon, and uh, thank you, Rain Wilson. Hey, guys. This is Max Fitzpatrick of the Max and Tony Show. We just want to thank you guys for tuning in to our 34th episode. Sponsored by Forbidden Root Beer, next time you're in Chicago, check out their brewery on 1746 West Chicago Avenue. Big shout out to Parkwalk Productions, home of the Max and Tony Show. Don't forget to check out Adventureland Gallery and the Dime Showroom at 1513 Northwestern. Look out for Rick Tellinger June 1st in Adventureland and Heather Horton June 8th in the Dime. Want to catch up on old episodes? Have any burning questions for... Max or Tony, then go to the maxandtonyshow.com. Tune in next time for our 35th episode.